Well, good morning. Um, we are now in week 19 uh, of our series, uh, working our way through the entire Bible. Uh, over the last 19 weeks, worked our way through 2,000 years of history, 66 separate books, the 66 books that make up the Bible, 1,189 chapters, and a staggering 31,102 verses. And through it all, What we've been seeing, what we've been exposed to again and again and again is the sheer greatness of God's plan for the world. Just the last few weeks as we have entered the New Testament, we've seen how Jesus' death and resurrection very much stands at the crossroads of all human history. And then as we've looked at the birth, the launch of the first church, we've seen how God's phenomenal power bursts through every obstacle to the gospel. It's all incredibly exciting until we look around us. And then perhaps it doesn't always look quite so good. You watch the news, for example, and be left thinking, well, with all these terrible things happening around the world, there might not even be a God or as Stephen Fry's recent outburst put it, I don't know if you saw it, but along the lines of, well, if there is a God and he allows all of this stuff to happen, I don't want anything to do with him. Or perhaps you know someone who claims to be a Christian and they just put you off big time. It's like their hypocrisy makes you doubt the truth of the Christian message. As Mahatma Gandhi once said to some Christian missionaries, I like your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Or maybe it's closer to home. Maybe circumstances haven't worked out in your own life. Perhaps it's an illness, or a problem at work, or a bereavement. And even now, maybe it's making you seriously doubt God. Or you can read all of these stories in the Bible of the church expanding and God working wonders for his people. Then you have a look around at the church today and sometimes you can be left just kind of scratching your head. I mean, where is the fruit that God's promised us? We can end up sometimes discouraged and disillusioned. Let's be real about this. Life can be difficult at times. Life can be incredibly tough. And sadly, number of people I know have reacted to these disappointments by saying to God, end of story, I'm just giving up. But I think often there's a more subtle danger that can befall those of us who are Christians. It is to look like you're still following Jesus, but in many respects to downsize him. You you read the Bible and kind of believe most of it, You sing about Jesus when we gather like this on a Sunday, but to be quite honest, throughout the week, it's like you don't know him at all. You certainly don't expect him to be speaking to you, or really to be making any kind of difference to your day-to-day life. It's like you've got so battered and bruised along the way, so disappointed and so disillusioned by life, you've ended up downsizing your expectations of what God is going to do in you and through you. I don't know if any of you can relate to any of that, but if you can, 
this final installment of the story is most definitely for you. You see, the book of Revelation, that the final book in the Bible, basically tackles this whole issue head on. We've gone through the whole Bible in 19 weeks, and in the final part, God starts speaking to us specifically about the period of history that we are living in today. And the basic message is that God won't always do things the way we expect. The message is that there will be suffering, there will be disappointments, there will be setbacks, there will be things that make you want to give up on following Jesus altogether. Really, it's in this context that the Bible ends. It ends by grappling with what it's like trying to follow Jesus in this day and age. Now, the Greek word revelation basically means laying bare. It's like pulling back the curtain to reveal what's really going on in heaven and on earth. Here's how it begins. Chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. It's kind of saying, anyone who gets their heads around the big picture of the message of Revelation will be blessed, because it's going to help you get what's really going on in world history. So really, all I want to try and do this morning is help you grasp some of the main themes in this book. Before then, giving you the opportunity to respond for yourselves to what you've heard. You see, Revelation very much ends on a point of decision. It ends with Jesus coming back. It ends with Judgment Day. It ends with heaven or hell. It ends with a crucial choice. It's a book that very much demands a response. Maybe your response will simply be, God, I realize that in some way I've downsized you in my mind, in my thinking, and I, I need to get a full glimpse of who you really are. Or it might be that you're not a Christian, and today might be the day where you say, look, I've still got loads of questions, but I'm going to come to Jesus with the questions I've got, and I'm going to say, I still don't understand everything, but I understand enough of who you are, and I want to follow you. Or maybe it's just a case of, I'm still not sure, but I want to look into who you are a little more seriously from now on. Or you might decide to do absolutely nothing in response, but I at least want to give you the choice. So let's go through this final book of the Bible, grasp how it all ends. First three chapters are letters addressed to seven churches. 
And just by way of an aside, uh, I should just point out at this moment, because you will be wondering as we keep hitting seven this and seven that and seven of these things and seven of those things, a distinctive feature of the book of Revelation is the frequent repeated use of the number seven. In fact, it appears 52 times in the book of Revelation. Symbolically, the number seven just stands for completeness. So every time you hit the number seven, it's talking of completeness. I've got that settled. Let's look at uh, these seven letters to seven churches. There were seven real churches in the province of Asia, but Jesus very much dictates these seven letters to these churches because he wants to help John, the author of Revelation, and us, the readers of this book, to grasp that there are going to be periods in history, periods in our own lives, when the church just looks pretty weak. And Jesus doesn't pull his punches, because quite frankly, John, like us often, needed it. John was the last surviving disciple of Jesus. All 12 disciples were dead except for John. Most of them had been crucified or beheaded for preaching the good news about Jesus. John is the last man standing He's the last one who was there when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And things now aren't going very well. The leads of the church are being executed by the Roman Empire, left, right and centre. John himself is in exile on this remote island of Patmos because the emperor has said, we, we don't want you or your message here. As well as the very real persecution on the outside. The church had also, over the years, become infected with false teaching and immorality and corruption on the inside. John would have had such high hopes for the church that he now risked becoming mightily discouraged and disillusioned by what he saw. And Jesus basically says to John, This is actually how it's going to be through the rest of history. He writes these seven letters. They say things like, I know that you have little strength. He's acknowledging there are churches that are weak. He says to another church, you've lost your first love. He's warning us, there will be churches where there's little or no life. This is though people are just going through religious rituals just doesn't seem to be any genuine relationship with God going on. Talks about one church being persecuted. Talks of another church falling for false teaching. Just to say, the persecution that we see is nothing in comparison with what John was seeing. But it is coming closer. And we mustn't be shaken, we mustn't be confused, we mustn't be rattled by it. And as for false teaching certainly on the rise. One of the Christian leaders that most inspired me back in the day when I was a teenager was in the media just last year, twisting the Bible in ways that just kind of mess up the lives of many, many people. I could look at the state of the church in the UK right now and at times be tempted to give up. What the book of Revelation does is convince me that this isn't the end of the story. God's people have often looked weak, but God's plans have always still prevailed. 
I don't know what you think. I don't reckon it's a mistake that the book of Revelation begins with the words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because really, that's what we need most when we're discouraged and when we're tempted to give up. What we need more than anything else is to get a true revelation, a true picture, a true understanding of Jesus. And so sometimes God will take everything that we'd rely on away, so all that is left is Jesus. And that might seem like an utter disaster, but it's really not if it's forcing us to focus and rely more on Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, John, in the midst of this confusion and despair, just catches a small glimpse of Jesus in his glory, and it changes everything for him. Verse 12, chapter 1, I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. When bad things happen, Jesus wants you to focus on him. Jesus tells you up front, he's honest, he's real. He says there will be tough times. You you look at the church sometimes and think, really? Why doesn't the church look stronger? Why isn't the church more impressive than this? Really, I think it's because the church is full of people like you and me. And that's okay, because the success of the church doesn't rely on us. Ultimately, it relies on Jesus And what we see through the book of Revelation is that Jesus is on the throne. He is still in control. His power is sufficient. And nothing in history can ruin the end of God's big story. In fact, as we move on, that's the main message of chapters 4 and 5. John sees another vision. He sees a vision of what's happening in heaven. He sees that Jesus is the slaughtered lamb of God seated on the throne and that he alone has power to open up the book of history. It's like he alone will shape the final chapter of the human story. The devil may attack the church. He may attempt to dull the power of the gospel but he cannot stop the song of praise to Jesus, which resounds through heaven. With your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the song, even now, going on around the throne in heaven. And then, in chapter 6 and 7, the curtain is pulled back a little further. John sees a little bit more. He watches Jesus break each of the seven seals, which represent his sovereign power to shape the book of history. Despite 
the devil's best attempts to destroy, to wipe out, to undermine the human race, God always has the last word in the story. The scroll, which is a picture of the events of history, is already fully written. It's God's way of saying he's already determined, he already knows what's going to happen in world history. And these scrolls detailing all of world history are sealed shut. And the only person with authority to break the seals and see what's inside is Jesus. When Jesus breaks the seals, opens up the scrolls, we get to glimpse at what's written inside uh, we see stories of wars and famines and persecution and natural disasters. It's a way of saying that through all the pain and the very real suffering of history, Jesus remains in control. None of it throws him, none of it surprises him, none of it catches him unawares, none of it is going to thwart his plans or purposes He saw it all coming before it even happened. And however bad it gets, he will still have the final word. Isn't that one of the things we've been learning throughout this whole series? Haven't we seen again and again that God is powerful enough to turn even bad things around for good? And we're back to the book of Genesis. Joseph gets sold into slavery God turns it around for good and saves the entire nation of Egypt from a famine that would otherwise have wiped them out. The Israelites themselves end up as slaves in Egypt, but again, God turns it around for good by delivering them so the whole world would see that he is the one true God. Even the death of Jesus, the ultimate disaster, turns into the ultimate victory as Jesus is raised to life three days later. And in the book of Acts, every time the church is persecuted and scattered, it just keeps multiplying, just keeps growing and growing and growing. Really, if the Bible teaches us anything, it teaches us that God can use anything for good. A guy called Richard Stengel wrote this about Nelson Mandela. He wrote... Nelson Mandela had many teachers in his life, but the greatest of them was prison. Prison molded the man that we see and know today. Prison taught him self-control, discipline, and focus. It taught him how to be a full human being. Anyone who's wise can tell you that sometimes it's the disastrous things in our lives that awakens us to what really matters. And that's the lesson of this section of Revelation with the seven seals. Even though there's disaster going on in one chapter, the next chapter opens up and shows us what Jesus is accomplishing, even through the news stories that horrify us today. It's in the face of apparent disaster Revelation 7 describes John looking up and seeing that there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, 
standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus wants you to understand that history will be full of dreadful, shocking stories. A big part of it is caused by human sin and the consequences of it. There's also a whole lot of stuff that at the end of the day we just cannot explain. We just don't know. But Jesus wants us to understand that whatever happens, he can still turn it around for good. Whatever you are facing right now, it is not the end of the story. And it's only in the last chapters of Revelation, chapters 8 to 20, we grasp how it is all going to end. After the seven letters to the seven churches and the seven seals on the seven scrolls, we get the sounding of the seven trumpets and the pouring out of the seven bowls. This whole section continues to talk about the relentless suffering in the world, but it makes it intensely personal. In Revelation 9, as the trumpets are sounded, it says this, the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Talks about suffering in a deeply personal way. And concludes by saying that everyone needs to respond to God in the midst of suffering, both the great and the small. We all need to respond to God. Now, you might be sitting there tempted to respond like Stephen Fry and shake your fist in fury at God. I mean, an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God wouldn't allow suffering without a good reason. And because suffering exists, and because I cannot think of any good reason for it, logically there cannot be an all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God. But the problem with this way of thinking, the problem with this kind of logic, is it assumes that you know absolutely everything there is to know about God and you understand everything there is to be understood about all of world history. And what the book of Revelation so helpfully does is it gives us a glimpse into spiritual realities that are a mystery to us. It shows us there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the universe that's beyond the capacity of our minds or our imaginations to grasp. And if you think about it, isn't that reassuring? I mean, I don't want to follow a God who thinks and acts like me. I want to follow a God who's above and beyond me in every way. I'm telling you, a God who I could fully understand with my puny mind really wouldn't be worth worshipping. Now, I'll be the first to put my hands up and admit there are a whole lot of things I do not understand 
And if I was God, I would have done them differently. But at the end of the day, I have to humbly acknowledge that God's ways are higher than mine. And although it is a struggle at times, I'm all right with that. Listen, the book of Revelation is God saying to you, the things that have been going on in your life are not a mistake. Jesus commands the trumpet to sound. He wants to work in your life. It's unlike Nelson Mandela could step out of a prison cell and look back on it all and say, people meant this for evil, but God turned this around for good. There is nothing you can go through which by God's grace, he can't still turn around in some way for good. You might not be able to think of anything good that could come from a certain situation, but you can't see everything. And I really don't want to be insensitive to your situation and I say this gently and I say this humbly but if God is God and you're not surely he might be able to see all manner of things that you can't I recognize some of you even now will be struggling to accept this we'd love to pray with you at the end so many of us even in this room have been through trials of our own. I think one of the great things about being part of the church family is we get to bear one another's burdens. We get to stand with one another in the midst of it. So if you're grappling with disappointment, disillusionment, unanswered questions, please, whatever you do, don't fool yourself that you're the only one who's struggling. Jesus gave this revelation to John so that we would all understand that this is actually just part and parcel of living in a fallen, broken, fractured world. But listen, if God's master plan to save the world involved his own son suffering and dying, we shouldn't grow discouraged as if our suffering could ever truly be the end of the story. Because as we get to the final chapters suddenly Jesus returns. It's funny, when life's good and everything's going well, people don't want Jesus to come back. But when you talk to people who are going through an incredibly tough time, they're desperate for Jesus to return. People who are having a great time say, how dare God judge evil? People who are going through a hard time say, why isn't God doing anything about the evil in the world? And what we find right at the end of the story is that none of these problems that we've been talking about or thinking about this morning are the end of the story. The end of the story is that the God who can turn things around for good suddenly appears. And he appears to do away with evil and suffering and pain and mourning and cancer and death and injustice once and for all. Revelation 20 to 22, we see world history ending and eternity beginning. Jesus returns. Jesus comes back. And it's judgment day. He gets the devil who is real, despite 
attempts in the church of late to airbrush him out of the story because it's a little awkward and who could really believe in him? No, the devil is real. He causes so much misery in the world. And the end of the story is he gets thrown into hell. And those who are thrown into hell with him because they sided with him and rejected the offer of new life in Jesus, they rejected the gospel at the end of the day, they are left with no excuse. Let's be honest. God has given us so much time to repent, to turn to Him, that none of us can complain that God's being unfair when the story finally ends. Think about it. For those who have chosen to live without Him in this life, surely it follows, it makes sense that he should sentence them to an eternity shut out from his presence in the life to come. And then in Revelation 21, God gives us a glimpse of the paradise that awaits those who follow him. He promises he'll restore the world to how it's intended to be before Adam and Eve sinned. Heaven will come down to earth and he will fuse the two together into one glorious place where God will dwell with his people forever and ever and ever. The Lord shouts from his throne at the end of Revelation, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I am am making everything new. That is the end of the story that we began 19 weeks ago. That is where all of world history is heading. That is the grand finale in a story which has taken us through 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,102 verses. All of history is simply the prelude to the eternal life which those who are followers of Jesus will enjoy with him for all eternity. Yes, there will be setbacks. (laughs) There will be times when God's great story appears to have come to a premature end. But don't let that distract you from the big picture. Through it all, God is on the throne. And he is sovereignly shaping the events of world history to fulfill his master plan to save the world, to have a people made up of every nation, every tribe, every people group, every language. Behold, I'm coming soon, Jesus promises, as the Bible draws to an end. And John ends the book by responding, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let me ask you, what's your response going to be?